I wanted to introduce uh, our preacher this morning. Most of you know him, but there may, you can go ahead and come up. Uh, there may be some of you uh, who are guests, or maybe you haven't, if you're brand new to the church, maybe you've never gotten to meet Adam before, but I'll give you a brief in- introduction, and then uh, you can uh, open the word for us. But uh, Adam Pennard's a member of our church here, uh, has been uh, for a few years now, uh, but he and his family are down in Louisville, Kentucky, uh, this school year at our denomination's Pastors College. It's a one-year training program uh, for men who are interested in pursuing pursuing eldership in a local church. And our hope uh, for Adam, and we've expressed it to the church, and most of you know this, but our hope is that as they return here this summer, that we can continue uh, him on a pathway towards eldership and then have him be uh, the primary leader of a church plant down in North Manchester in the next few years' time. So uh, that's what our hopes and prayers are, uh, Lord willing that the Lord would work in that way. Uh, But he has to preach a sermon for one of his classes uh, at the school. Uh, But I wanted him too as well. So this is more than just an assignment. Uh, As a member of our church, I wanted to give him the opportunity to preach uh, to us and for us from the Word of God. Uh, I have gotten to listen to a a first draft of it, and I was edified in listening to it. And so this is going to be the next text in our our series through Hebrews. So let's welcome Adam, give him a round of applause, and you can go ahead, brother. Thank you. Man, even though I have to be here, it's a true, it's a true joy and privilege to be, to be here with you all today. It's, and it's just an even bigger joy to be with my CCC family with the purpose of serving you all by preaching God's word today. Like Mark said, uh, before I start, just some introductory things. I just wanted to thank you guys. Like Mark said, my wife Claire and I, and now joined by our two-month-old son Asher, we've been down in Louisville, Kentucky, since August, attending our denominations, Pastors College, it's the Sovereign Grace Pastors College. Um, and to say that it's been a formative year for us would just be an understatement. It's been such a joy to be there. For me, I get to be in a classroom for 30 plus hours a week and do homework for another 30 hours a week with some great guys uh, that are, have all been sent from their local churches as well with the intent of serving local churches in ministry or in church planting. And I get to be in a classroom for 30 hours a week with top-notch professors and pastors from around the states that come to serve us uh, in teaching, uh, whatever the topic of that week is. And least importantly, I get to spend a lot of time playing foosball with a lot of guys that I've really grown to love during my time there. So if any of you are into foosball, let me know. I'd love to play some foosball with you. Um, and for my wife, Claire, uh, she's been served immensely by her time with the other PC wives that are there, with the wives of the pastors of Sovereign Grace Church of Louisville, and being able to stay home with our son, Asher, who she so affectionately and meaningfully and faithfully cares for. So, like I said, it's just a privilege to be here. Every time Claire and I are preparing for a trip back here to, to visit for a weekend, we say countless times before before we make the drive up here, just how much we are looking forward to being at CCC. We probably said it five or 10 times this week leading up to to coming back here. So I just wanted to take the opportunity to say thank you to you as our church family, to CCC, as, as our church family, for your generosity that enabled us to even be at the Pastors College this year. It means so much to be, to be there, first of all, but to be there with both the blessing and the provision of our church that we love so dearly. It's, it's just, I can't, I can't thank you enough. So I just wanted to express my thankfulness to you guys in that way. 
it's an honor to be with you today, and it's an even bigger honor to spend some time looking at God's word together as we continue our series through the book of Hebrews. So turn with me in your Bible to the book of Hebrews, if you would, chapter 9. We're going to continue in chapter 9. We'll be in verses 15 through 22. Hebrews chapter 9, verses 15 through 22. And as you find your way to our passage today, I'd like to read for you an old legal document from the 18th century. It's just an excerpt, uh, but it's an excerpt of the last will and testament of our nation's first president, George Washington. So Mr. Washington, he wrote this, this last will and testament by hand in July of 1799, which was just a mere five months before he passed away in December of that same year. So it reads, In the name of God, amen, I, George Washington of Mount Vernon, citizen of the United States and lately president of the same, do make, ordain, and declare this instrument, which is written with my own hand and every page thereof subscribed with my name to be my last will and testament, revoking all others. Imprimis, which Google tells me means something like in the first place, all my debts, of which there are but few and none of magnitude, are to be punctually and speedily paid, and the legacies hereinafter bequeathed are to be discharged as soon as circumstances will permit and in the manner directed. Item, to my dearly beloved wife, Martha Washington, I give and bequeath the use profit, and benefit of my whole estate, real and personal, for the term of her natural life, except such parts thereof as are specifically disposed of hereafter. My improved lot in the town of Alexandria, situated on Pitt and Cameron Streets, I give to her and her heirs forever, as I also do my household and kitchen furniture of every sort and kind, with the liquors and groceries which may be on hand at the time of my decease, to be used and disposed of as she may think proper." And then he goes on to list many other items in his will here until, before he summarizes and says, Lastly, I constitute and appoint my dearly beloved wife, Martha Washington, my nephews, William Augustine Washington, Bushrod Washington, George Steptoe, poor guy, Washington, <laughs> Samuel Washington, and Lawrence Lewis, and my ward, George Washington Park Custis, when he shall have arrived at the age of 20 years, executrix and executors of this will and testament. In witness of all and of each of the things herein contained, I have set my hand and seal this ninth day of July in the year 1799 <clears throat> and of the independence of the United States, the 24th. Five months after the writing of these words, George Washington died. And everything within this document came to pass. For those who were listed as beneficiaries in this will, everything changed. As you can see from even this short excerpt, a will is a sober document. It is a careful document. It's a decisive document. Now, I read this excerpt because it exemplifies for us what our passage today in Hebrews addresses. The idea of a will or the idea of a last will and testament. So this idea of a last will and testament will be very important in today's passage in Hebrews chapter 9, verses 15 through 22, which speaks of another last will and testament. It speaks of a better last will and testament than George Washington's, and it's a last will and testament that has supreme relevance to each of us 
that are here in this room today. So join me in Hebrews chapter 9, verses 15 through 22. We will get a running start, and we'll start with verse 11, uh, which was preached last week. So we'll be, we'll be starting at verse 11 of Hebrews 9. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Now this begins our passage here. Therefore, he is, Christ is the mediator of a new covenant. So that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. Since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. For where a will is involved, the death of the one who made it must be established. For a will takes effect only at death. Since it's not in force as long as the one who made it is alive. Therefore, not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. For when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people, he took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. And in the same way, he sprinkled with the blood both the tent and all the vessels used in worship. Indeed, under the law... Almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. This is God's word to his church today. Let's pray that God would bless the preaching of it and the hearing and doing of it. Father God, we come to you praising you for even the ways that we've been able to praise your name this morning through, through song and through hearing the testimony of your mighty works God, I ask that as we turn to your word now, that you would, by your spirit, illuminate our minds, that we would understand your word, that, that we would glory in the cross, that we would come away from this text in Hebrews with a bigger view of who you are and what you've done in Christ. God, I ask that you would bless me as I preach your word and that you would bless our church as, as we hear. We pray these things in Christ's holy and precious name. Amen. So I'll say, I'll say what you might be thinking after I just read that text. What did we just read? It's, it's a thick text, Hebrews 9, 15 through 22. At first, at first read, this passage can be pretty difficult to grasp. It's, it can be a bit overwhelming with all of its talk of old covenants and new covenants and legal documents and blood not to mention the fact that we, as I'm sure you've seen many times in Hebrews, are so far removed from the intricate and complicated system of worship that, that would have been so familiar to the original audience of the book of Hebrews. But I trust that as, despite whatever obscurities the text might seem to present at first read, that as we explore 
what the text has for us as the people of God this morning, that we will be richly blessed. Because in this passage, we'll see things of eternal significance, things regarding hope, things regarding security, things regarding forgiveness. So as we journey through this text, we'll see that what the author is communicating to his audience and what, and what God is communicating to us today through this text is this, that Christ's redemptive death has secured your eternal inheritance. That Christ's redemptive death has secured your eternal inheritance. Let's look again at verse 15 to begin to get our bearings of where we are in the book of Hebrews and how our passage fits into it. First, you'll notice that in our passage, in verse 15, it begins with the word, therefore. Now, at, at the risk of being painfully repetitive of this important Bible study practice, whenever you see the word, therefore, in Scripture, you should ask yourself, what is the therefore, therefore, right? So, thinking back to last week in the text that, that was preached, we know that by this therefore, the author is referring back to verses 11 to 14, specifically verse 11 even, um, of this chapter, and Christ's offering of himself as a sacrifice in the greater and more perfect tent not made with hands, right? So, packed into this one-word introduction to our passage is just an explosive amount of glorious truth. We can understand this one-word introduction, just this one therefore, as communicating something like, on the basis of Christ's offering of himself as a better sacrifice, and done so as the better high priest in the better tabernacle, and now back to the language of our passage in verse 15, for these reasons, he is the mediator of a new covenant. Because of what Christ has done, he is the mediator of a new covenant. He's the one who stands between God and man, and in what context does he do it here? He does it in the context of the new covenant. Christ is the mediator of the new covenant. Now, when the original readers of this, of this letter of Hebrews would hear this phrase, new covenant, alarm bells would sound in their mind, and maybe alarm bells are sounding in your mind too, and you're thinking, Jeremiah 31, new covenant, Jeremiah 31, new covenant. The author of Hebrews, uh, in chapter 8, if you remember, he's already addressed uh, and quoted at length uh, the new covenant in Jeremiah 31, um, but it's appropriate to, to readdress it here. So Jeremiah 31, verses 31 to 34, which is what our text is referring to today, says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. This is 
the covenant that Christ mediates, the covenant that is not like the old covenant that the Israelites broke, the covenant that promises that God will write his law on his people's hearts, the covenant in which every participant will know God intimately, not just the priests, not just the clergy. Now look back to verse 15 in our passage. Therefore, he's the mediator of a new covenant, so that, and here we have a statement of purpose, He's the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. So now we're getting to the purpose of why Christ is the mediator of a new covenant, what he does as the mediator of the new covenant. And here the author introduces two ideas for us that that he'll flesh out throughout the rest of our passage. And these two things will shape the rest of our exploration of our passage today as well. The first thing he introduces is the necessity of a death for an inheritance. The necessity of a death for an inheritance. And the second thing he introduces is the necessity of blood for redemption. And these two ideas, like I said, these will shape our exploration of the rest of the passage from here as we see how Christ's redemptive death has secured your eternal inheritance. First, in verses 16 to 17, we see the necessity of a death for an inheritance. Look at those two verses again with me, verses 16 to 17. For where a will is involved, the death of the one who made it must be established. For a will takes effect only at death, since it's not in force, as long as the one who made it is alive. So in this passage, the author compares the new covenant that was promised in Jeremiah 31 to a will, a last will and testament, that legal document that itemizes who gets what after you pass. Now, in the context of this passage, just think about how wild this language is. The author of Hebrews isn't just talking about any normal human will, he's comparing here the, the promise of the new covenant to a will. This should, we should ask, why does he do this? Why is he comparing the promise of the new covenant to a will? Why does he call the new covenant a will? Well, he does so for at least five reasons. First, the first reason that he compares the new covenant to a will is that a will involves, and this is going to be a technical word, a testator. A will involves a testator. That's just the term for someone who makes a will. So a will involves a testator. A will obviously doesn't just spontaneously come into being. A will, it reflects the will of a person, right? Designing your will requires thinking. And in this will-shaped new covenant, the testator, the maker of the will is God himself through the prophet Jeremiah. God is the one who made the covenant. He's the one who made the will. That's our first reason he compares the new covenant to a will. Our second reason is that a will involves death. The second reason he compares the new covenant to a will. A will involves death. Death is required to enact a will, right? A will is only effective after the person who made it dies. How much legal force does a will carry while the person who made it is alive? 
None. It carries no force while the person who made it is alive. At that point, it's nothing more than just a document of potentiality, right? For instance, if my will says, if I, when I die, you get my house, what's the condition of you getting my house? My death, right? If I wrote into my will that upon my death, you get my books, and if you come into my house and you start taking my books while I still have a pulse, you're taking something that's not legally yours yet, right? Not until my death does my will come into force. And this is, where, this is where our minds should start to spin a little bit in the context of this passage. The author is telling us that God made a will that by nature can only come into effect upon his death. How can God die? Only if he were to somehow take on human flesh would he be able to die. And that's exactly what we see in the person of Jesus Christ, God the Son, who took on flesh to die the death that would set the new covenant promises into motion. Until then, the promise of the new covenant that we just read in Jeremiah 31 was nothing more than just that, a promise of things to come. Until then, it, do, it did nothing more than my will does today. That's our second reason. Our third reason he compares the new covenant to a will is that a will involves time. It must be made earlier than the person's death, obviously. If I die without having my will in place, that's a bummer. It's too late. I can't make a will as a dead man, and someone else can't make, for, make a will for me as a dead man. There is, by nature of a last will and testament, some time between its making and its coming into effect, right? This, and this is exactly what we see in the, prom, in the will of the new covenant that was promised in Jeremiah 31 hundreds of years before it came into effect with the death of Christ. So that's our third reason is that a will involves time. Our fourth reason is that a will involves an executor or a person who carries out the will after the person has passed, a person who oversees that process. And now here our heads could just, should just continue to spin in the context of this passage. The executor of the will of the new covenant is the same person as the testator of the will. Not only is Jesus the testator, the one who made the will and who took on human flesh to be able to die the death that would bring the new covenant promises into effect, but because he did not stay dead, but was rather raised on the third day, he also serves as the executor of the will. Look at verse 15 again. He is the mediator of the new covenant. Executing the will and bringing all of the promises of the new covenant to pass is part of Christ's mediatorial work. This should astound us. This is the first time and the only time in human history that the same person can serve as the testator and the executor of the will, the person who made it and the person who carries it out upon the testator's death. If you meet with a lawyer to put together your will, they'll ask you at some point, who would you like to serve as the executor of your will? If you respond to your lawyer's question and you say, me, I, 
I would like to be the one that, that, that oversees the process of my will being carried out upon my death. Your lawyer's opinion of you is going to plummet quite quickly. Do you not understand how a will works, or do you not understand how death works? One of the two, you've got some confusion on. You cannot oversee the process of what happens to you, happens to your things, after your, own, after your own death. You're going to be dead. But in the new covenant will, the one who died and is now alive is both the testator and the executor of the promises. He both made them and he carries them out. That's our fourth reason. Our fifth reason that the author compares the new covenant to a will. And most importantly in our passage today is this, that a will involves an inheritance. Everything that a person is to receive upon your death is known as an inheritance. If you get my house when I die, my house is considered your inheritance. Now, Compared to what Hebrews 9 is talking about here in today's passage, my house would be just about the most disappointing inheritance you could ever receive. It would be equivalent to Grandma Betsy's quilt that everybody hates. Read verse 15 again. Therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. Wow, this, this, this raises a couple of questions about this inheritance. First, what is this promised eternal inheritance? Obviously sounds great, right? What is this promised eternal inheritance? What is the author referring to? Well, set against the backdrop of the Old Testament as a whole, we can understand it as the inheritance that was promised to Abraham so long ago in Genesis. It's the fulfillment of what was only seen in part in the Old Testament when Israel inherited the promised land. But whereas the inheritance of the Old Covenant was temporal and brief, the inheritance of the New Covenant is eternal and lasting. It is nothing less than eternal life with God. Because of Christ's work as the mediator of the New Covenant, he has secured for his children the inheritance that he promised long ago, one that will never fade away. He has secured for those who trust in him eternal life. He has prepared and secured for those who trust in Christ for their salvation an eternal home with him. This is why the author of Hebrews compares the new covenant to a will. Because by it, we come into our eternal inheritance in Christ. An inheritance that is, to use the, to use the language of 1 Peter, imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. Listen to how Ephesians 1 puts it. In him, in Christ, we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of his glory. Praise God. 
Now, my second question about this inheritance is who gets it? Who gets this inheritance? Is it an indiscriminate, undefined group of people? Or is it something different? Now, even stepping out of our passage here today for a second and thinking about how wills work in, in modern day is helpful on this point. In a will, how are people identified as heirs or as inheritors from the one who made the will? How do we identify those who are to receive from us upon our death? They're mentioned by name. You would be a fool in this same meeting that you've already embarrassed yourself with the lawyer. You'd be a fool in your, in your will to put, upon my death, someone gets my house. Who's someone? Who, who's someone? Who's getting, who's getting your house? They are mentioned by name. A will has specific, defined, selected people in mind by the one who made the will. And so too does the will of the new covenant. Look at verse 15 once again. Who is it that receives this eternal inheritance? So that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. Who gets the eternal inheritance? Those who are called. Now this is a much needed reminder for each of us here today. That the God who made the covenant is the one who has taken the initiative to make us inheritors of it by the work of Christ. Make no mistake, it is not by any, it's not by your own merit that you receive this inheritance. It's not by something impressive that you have within you. It's not by something impressive that you've done or something admirable inside of you that you receive this inheritance. You brought nothing to the table. I brought nothing to the table. You are an heir purely by the sovereign grace of God. As I was preparing to preach this passage, I came across a news story from 2010 that captures some of the feel of what's going on here in Hebrews chapter 9. The title of the story was Cave-Dwelling Homeless Brothers Inherit Billions. Cave-Dwelling Homeless Brothers Inherit Billions. The article reads, Two homeless brothers who had been living in a cave in Hungary inherit billion-dollar fortune. The two brothers, Zolt and Gez Peladai, had no fixed address, that is, they had no home, and eked out a meager, a meager existence selling reusable trash that they would find in the street. On cold nights, they huddled in a cave for warmth. But their days of homeless scavenging are over. The Hungarian brothers are entitled to their long-lost grandmother's fortune. Charity workers, that is, homeless shelter staff where they were staying, broke the news after being contacted by lawyers handling the estate of their maternal grandmother who recently passed in Germany. If this all works out, said one of the brothers, it will certainly make up for the life we've had thus far. All we really had was each other. Nobody would look at us living in a cave. This is you. This is me. It is solely 
by the grace of God that he called you. It is by God's grace that he adopts you as one of his beloved children and he calls you to your inheritance in Christ. He called and you came to him to receive it in Christ. There are probably some of you here today that God is calling to even now. As you've heard the glory of Christ proclaimed through song, as you've interacted with the people of God here today, as you've heard his word preached, he is calling out to you. Come, receive. Receive the inheritance that he holds out to you in Christ. Receive the eternal life that he offers in Christ. Christ's redemptive death has secured your eternal inheritance. Thus far, we've seen that in comparing the new covenant to a will, the author has shown us the necessity of a death for an inheritance. And now, turning to the second half of our passage, we'll see the necessity of blood for redemption. So read with me verses 18 through 22 of Hebrews 9 again. Therefore, not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. For when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people, he took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. And in the same way, he sprinkled with the blood both the tent and all the vessels used in worship. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. So here, the author of Hebrews transitions from this illustration of a will to describe the new covenant to recounting the scene at the inauguration of the first covenant, the old covenant, the Mosaic covenant. So just as he has shown that the new covenant required death and blood to enact it, so too did the old covenant require blood and death to enact it. Verse 18, not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. Now, here's a reality that's found throughout the Bible. In the making of a covenant, there must be blood. There must be death. The first covenant, the old covenant, didn't require the death of the one who made it like the new covenant did, as we saw previously, but it required death nonetheless. And this is the point that the author is making. The new covenant is similar to the old in that it required death to enact it. Then, in the remaining verses in our passage, the author recounts what happened at the first covenant inauguration ceremony in Exodus 24. After Moses declared, after Moses declared all the commandments of God to all the people, he sprinkled the blood of animals on the Ten Commandments, on the tent, and on all the vessels used for worship. Just look at how many times blood is used in these verses. The author does not want us to miss its importance. Now, why did Moses put so much blood all over the place in the inauguration of the Old Covenant? 
Verse 22, it summarizes the point of all this old covenant blood talk when it says, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. So not only is a death necessary for an inheritance, as we saw earlier, but now we see the necessity of blood for redemption. This was true in the Old Covenant, and it's true in the New Covenant. The difference between the two is in the quality of the blood. The difference is in the effectiveness of the death. Flip over a page in your Bible to chapter 10, verse 4 real quick. We'll be here in a couple of weeks, but it's important to note now. Chapter 10, verse 4, it says, It is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Now flip back to chapter 9, verse 15. It reads, Therefore he's the mediator of a new covenant, so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. And we've looked at this. Since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. So, get this. What the blood of animals in the old covenant could never accomplish, our author tells us here that Christ has accomplished. Their transgressions, just like our transgressions, incur a mountain of debt that we are unable to bear. Our credit cards of morality are maxed out on sin. But Christ's death paid the debt that we owed. That's what this word redeem means here. It's, it's the language of buying freedom for a slave. No longer bound, our debt paid in full. And what the author of Hebrews is saying here is that Christ's death redeems even from the transgressions committed under the first covenant, under the Mosaic covenant. Even though Christ is the mediator of the new covenant, his death redeems from transgressions committed under the old covenant. He, his blood, his death, is the only one that redeems from transgressions, not the sacrificial animals of the Old Testament. Christ's death is so effectively redemptive that not only does he save those who trust in him from the point of his death and resurrection onward into the future, but in his death and resurrection, he reaches back into the past to redeem even those Old Testament saints who trusted in God from the, for the redemption of their transgressions under the first covenant. There is no salvation outside of Christ. Not before his life, death, death and resurrection, and certainly not after. On this point, John Calvin says, Now, if anyone asks whether sins under the law were remitted or taken away to the fathers, we must bear in mind the solution already stated, that they were remitted, but remitted through Christ. For when the sinner, the Old Testament sinner, came forward and openly confessed that he was guilty before God, and acknowledged by sacrificing an innocent animal that he was worthy of his eternal death, what did he obtain by his victim except that he sealed his own death, as it were, by this handwriting? In short, even then, 
They only reposed or rested in the remission of sins when they looked to Christ. But if only a regard to Christ took away sins, they could never have been freed from them had they continued to rest in the law. His death, Christ's death, is not only, as if we could even say only, the death that puts the new covenant promises in motion and secures our inheritance, but it's also the death that redeems us from transgressions. And in fact, the grammar, the the syntax of this passage makes clear that it is on the basis of Christ's redemptive death that our inheritance is secured. That's why we can say that this passage as a whole teaches us that Christ's redemptive death has secured your eternal inheritance. His death that redeems us from sin isn't an afterthought to the inheritance, it's the foundation of it. It is the basis for the inheritance. It's the bedrock foundation of it. If his death wasn't redemptive, there would be no inheritance. No Christ means no forgiveness, means no inheritance. If you have not received Jesus as your Savior from your sin, then I must be affectionately clear here. You have no redemption from your sin. You have no forgiveness. The cost of your sin is still on your shoulders. And if you do not have the redemptive death of Christ, you have no eternal inheritance. You have no true hope beyond this life that will be over in the blink of an eye. You have, and again I say this with love and great concern for your soul, only an inheritance of judgment. Today, as God calls you, even now, to come and to receive Christ, do not harden your heart. Jesus says in Revelation 3, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him, and he with me. Come to him in faith that his redemptive death can provide you eternal life in Christ. Now, for my brothers and sisters here, for my fellow Christians, what a glorious truth we live in. What a glorious truth I live in. If you have looked in faith to Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, Know this, you have been redeemed. In your inheritance, it has been secured. When you look backwards at the countless sins that you've committed, even the ones that feel unforgivable, know that you have been redeemed from its bondage. There is no doubt about it. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. When Satan tempts you to, to despair and tells you of the guilt within, upward you look and see him there the, who made an end to all your sin. And because 
of this redemption. Because of this forgiveness, as you look ahead, as you look forward into the future, know that you have a glorious, eternal inheritance secured for you by the redemptive death of Christ. It is unshakable because the one who guards it is unshakable. You have a sure hope, a great hope beyond comparison. And think about who this letter of Hebrews was written to. It was written to, if you remember, Jewish Christians who have turned to Christ, who are suffering under persecution and are tempted to go back to the old arrangement, tempted to go back to the old covenant. In this passage, the author shouts to these Christians that are tempted to go back, don't turn back. That is not better. This is better. Look at the eternal inheritance that Christ has provided for you. The eternal inheritance that Christ has secured for you. And likewise, for us here today, this inheritance that's secured for us by Christ is better than any inheritance, whether real or figurative, that you might, be, that you might have your sights set on. As you look ahead into the future, whether it be three months or three decades, what is it that you look longingly toward? What is it that you have your hope set on? It might be your healthy 401k. Maybe it's the hope of, of, be, of one day being married. Maybe it's graduating and, and getting your dream job. It might be a life of comfort. It might be the security of family. I don't know what it is, but you probably do. But as you look ahead, what should spark greater and greater excitement for and greater and greater affection for our Savior Jesus Christ is the truth that his redemptive death has secured your eternal inheritance. If you have looked to Christ in faith, you have inherited and you will inherit eternal life and eternal riches from your loving and gracious God to the praise of his glory. There is no doubt about it. Christ's redemptive death has secured your eternal inheritance if you've looked to Christ. Hebrews 9 has shown us this. We have, we've seen in this glorious passage today both the necessity of death for an inheritance and the necessity of blood for redemption. Praise God that in Christ, he has provided for us both of these things.